And we're back on Ariva Martin in real time. It's Avi Bernard in for Ariva Martin this evening. And I am very pleased to be joined by Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter for Political Pro covering Capitol Hill. Alice, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Speaking to my hometown of LA. Oh well, well, welcome home. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on on the program. You're you're doing great reporting, and um, uh, reporting out of the state of Ohio in regards to the issue one election last week. And the first thing that grabbed me, which is always good if you're a reporter, was the headline: "A staggering Ohio loss ignites an identity crisis within the anti-abortion movement." So that's the first thing I want to ask you about. Is there uh, how much of an identity crisis is there in the uh, conservative anti-abortion movement? Yeah, they're really all over the place. This is not the first big election loss they've experienced since Roe versus Wade was overturned. This is um, they're on a losing streak, in fact. Um, so, you know, six states voted last year on referendums related to abortion. Some were proposed by Republicans, some were proposed by Democrats, but in all of them, the anti-abortion side lost. Uh, and then that continued into the midterms. They lost a lot of races they were hoping to win. Um, they did win control of the House, but not the Senate, et cetera. Um, and Earlier this year, you had a special election for a Supreme Court, state-level Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin that was all about abortion. They lost that race. And then here comes Ohio yet again. And what was really striking to me is, one, the voter anger over the overturning of Roe versus Wade is not fading, as a lot of people predicted. It's still continuing to be a strong motivator in these state-level elections, really bringing huge turnout in races where that's not normal for a special election in August on an off year when college students are out of town. You know, that was expected to be very low turnout, and it was really high turnout because people are really upset and highly motivated to to vote on these things. So, of course, the real um, abortion referendum is going to be in November in Ohio. But this was sort of a preview of what be what could come. And you have anti-abortion groups really disagreeing, really being all over the place on why they lost, whether they need to change anything, who's to blame, et cetera. And that's what I was trying to capture. So you mentioned that the actual election is taking place in November in Ohio. Uh, this issue one would have made it mandatory that they get 60 percent of the vote in order to to uh, provide the abortion, the abortion rights. And so the anti-abortion crowd was trying to make it harder to amend the Constitution and they failed. And so the actual uh, abortion uh, election is happening this November. And as you said, if they could have handpicked a day any day in the calendar year probably would have been this day because of it being in the middle of the summer and it and it being an off year election and, and expecting low turnout. And, and they still it lost by a wide margin. It wasn't close. So is the election in November? Is it is it already kind of pretty much a done deal or um, what are the what are you hearing about what the. The, the prospects of that election being close in November, or should we even, should we be concerned about that? Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you can never know what, how the dynamics are going to evolve over the coming months, but polling so far indicates that the pro abortion rights side 
is in the lead right now, that um, there is a high level of support in the state, um, which is really revealing. And I think it builds on what we saw last year and some other red and purple states who have voted directly on this. You know, you look at these states and you say, oh, well, they elected these, you know, conservative governor, conservative state legislature, conservative members of Congress. They must think a certain way about abortion. And these referendums really reveal that that's not necessarily the case. You have a lot more uh, of people who self-identify as Republicans voting against uh, the same abortion bans that the politicians they elected support. Um, And so the polling suggests that this is on track to pass. However, I think you're going to see millions and millions pouring into this race on both sides. And I think you're going to see advertising blitzes. There are door knocking campaigns already in the works. So I think, you know, the some of the people I talked to for this story said that the August election was really a wake up call that they need to invest more in this really poor resources into Ohio. And so if that happens, we'll see. Um, I think it's 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 um, it's not clear at this point, but the anti-abortion side are sort of the underdogs, um, even though they at the national level have achieved so much over the past year. So Republicans aren't giving up on the November election. It would seem that, you know, this would certainly energize uh, the, the Democrats and it would energize the uh, the pro-choice side. But uh, the Republicans seem like they're not giving up. Um, so if you are in Ohio, you do have to, to continue to pay close attention and, and continue to vote if um, if you're eligible. And so let's let's talk about um, something else you, you said in your article that that I found interesting. Um, some some within the GOP are are pleading for the party to move away from backing near total bans with no exemptions. So a lot of Republicans, they want there to be a total ban on abortion, you know, six weeks, which is before many women even know they're pregnant. And they don't want to allow any exceptions for rape or incest. And are, are there growing calls within the party, uh, as you said? Uh, I, I know you, you said that there are, but I mean, what level of that are we seeing? Is it just a, a here and there, or, or or is there actually some 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 rising interest in the party to to not be so extreme with their with their Republican or I'm sorry with their abortion restrictions? Yeah. So this is something we've seen over over the past year. And in a lot of states, the clashes within the Republican Party on this question on how far to go in banning abortion is has really torn some folks apart. And in some states, it's really delayed the passage of any kind of abortion restrictions by months and months and months. You had some state legislatures, you know, I'm thinking of South Carolina, I'm thinking of of a few other states that were fighting so much over what kind of abortion ban to pass and how restrictive it should be that they ended up not passing anything for a while because they just couldn't agree on this question. Um, And so, yes, you do have a significant faction of people saying, look, these near total bans uh, are 
not, you know, it's, it's what we want, you know, because we believe abortion is murder, but it's not what the majority of the public wants, as we see in polling, as we see in these election results. And so they're calling for a more moderate stance, um, you know, an abortion ban at 15 weeks of pregnancy, for example, with these exemptions. Now, the issue with that is that those are not popular either um, and are not seen as moderate by a lot of people. They're still seen as pretty extreme. Um uh, 15 weeks is, you know, fairly early in pregnancy still. A lot of people discover um, complications after that point in pregnancy. And some states that have 15-week bans, you already are seeing people having to travel out of state for that. And the issue with the exemptions has also been complicated by what we've seen over the last year. A lot of states that have these rape, incest, life of the mother, health of the mother exemptions, we have just heard these stories over and over and they've been reported in the media, they've come out in lawsuits, that those exemptions may exist on paper, but they're not really workable in practice. People are not able to actually use them to obtain an abortion, even though they technically qualify. So I think, you know, the anti-abortion groups, some of them are saying, look, we should push this more moderate stance uh, in order to, you know, win, win some incremental steps. But whether the public would embrace that as an incremental step, I think is unclear. We're speaking with Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter for Politico Pro. She's covering Capitol Hill and she has some great reporting for Politico about the uh, election in Ohio last week that would have made it more difficult to amend Ohio's constitution uh, to allow for uh, abortion rights in the state. So you you actually just alluded to what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, a 15-week ban is also unpopular, but is it unpopular enough mm. where maybe if these abortion uh, special elections happen in the future, where there is a referendum on abortion rights, as there was in Kansas, um, if, if these if these um, restrictions weren't as strict, do you think that uh, pro-choice activists, well, obviously the activists would be would still be all in, but do you think that the masses would come out and the turnout would be the same uh, as they were for issue one last week? It, it's a good question. So I think what, what we do see in polling is that... Um, you know, support for restrictions, the further you get into pregnancy, the more people support restrictions. So people, uh, the public are less comfortable with the idea of an abortion later in pregnancy than they are with an abortion earlier in pregnancy. Um, you're all, you also see some higher public support for certain kinds of restrictions, um, you know, for, for minors, for example, and whether they have to get parental consent in order to have an abortion. So you do see some areas where there are more popular support for different kinds of restrictions. But I think you've also seen over the past year that um, the overall idea of the government, whether it's state or federal government, interfering in this decision and this, this right to access this form of health care, you've seen that really turn. And so I think it's, I think you might have people that would have supported a 15-week ban a couple years ago, now that they've seen the impact of what government restrictions on abortion have caused for healthcare more broadly for different populations, they may feel differently. I think that's why these sp 
special elections and these referendums on abortion are so revealing because um, it really shows you where the public is at, I think, more more than polling has in the past. And what was really striking here, like you said, is this wasn't an abortion referendum directly. It was a few steps removed. And yet the feelings about it were so strong that people came out to vote in Ohio to to reject this effort that could have um, blocked a future abortion rights effort. And and the word abortion was not even on the ballot uh, in this election last week, this Ohio election last week. And, and activist groups are going to make sure that people are aware of what the issues are actually about because Republicans were acting like this this was some some kind of other issue that that would give outside interests access to their elections and and it wasn't actually about abortion but it seems like like the voters are, are kind of too smart for that and they're not gonna they're not gonna gonna fall for the banana and the tailpipe uh, if, if, to use a line from the Beverly Hills cop but um, uh, you mentioned in in your article that uh, there's a, a a fellow by the name of Patrick Brown who is a fellow at the Conservative Ethics and Public Policy Center, he called the result last week a five alarm fire for the pro-life movement. And what what did he mean by that? Yeah, so he is part of this camp that is saying, look, even though I believe we should work towards, you know, a total abortion ban, we need to recognize that the public is not there and we need to instead put forward, you know, sort of compromise positions or risk losing and, you know, permanently at the at the state and federal level. So, you know, there are those who disagree with him. There are those who are saying, no, the problem we have is more in the messaging, not the actual content of what we're promoting. Um, you know, this is this is why I, I said they're having I an identity crisis because they they're not in agreement on what the problem is. And it's really interesting that, you know, they worked for decades and decades and decades to topple Roe versus Wade. And they really didn't have consensus on what to do next and how to respond to uh, the public um, in in this new environment we're in. And so they're they're continuing to sort of clash with each other on, do, do they need to change the substance? Do they need to change the message? Do they need to change both? Do they need to change nothing? Do they need to really double down? Um, there's definitely people who are advocating for that and saying, oh, we lost because we weren't uh, strong enough in advocating for abortion restrictions and we shouldn't be embarrassed and we should just full-throatedly uh, advocate for that. Um, and what, you know, I, to which I say, I would love to see the public response to that. That would be fascinating. That's exactly what I was going to say. I said I was going to say I hope they take that route. I hope they they do decide to to be more proud of their of their anti-abortion stance and not try to use uh, these dog and pony tricks. Uh, last question for you, Alice. There is a big uh, election next year for U.S. Senate in Ohio. Uh, uh, incumbent Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown uh, vying to keep his seat. It's going to be a very tough race in a very polarized national environment. It's hard for Democrats to win statewide. Do you think this uh, this issue will will help uh, Senator Brown or do you think because it will already have been decided after this November that by the time next November comes around, it won't make a difference? Mm -hmm. And then the second part of the question is, how is it looking for um, Senator Brown in Ohio overall? 
Yeah, I mean, he's basically the only Democrat left who has been able to survive at the state level in Ohio. Um, the state has really moved red over the past few years. Um, and, you know, but he he remains quite popular and they've, you know, had trouble in Ohio and other states recruiting challengers on the GOP side for some of these popular Democratic incumbents. Um, that said, I think it'll be really fascinating to see how much he leans into the abortion rights issue. He is you know, on record as an abortion rights supporter, for sure. Uh, he's pretty progressive. But how much is he going to talk about that on the campaign trail? How much is he going to avoid it, maybe? Um, because he's in this tough race and he's considered one of the more vulnerable incumbents in the country. I think that'll be really fascinating. I also think that, um, you know, as we see, it's never really over. So even if the referendum happens next year, or sorry, this year, and his race is next year, I think it will continue to resonate. I also want to point out that the abortion ban in Ohio, it's a six-week ban, it's currently on hold by courts, but that could change. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what happens with that law and whether it goes back into effect before voters are able to have their say could really shift public opinion as well. Alice Miranda Olstein, reporter for Politico Pro. Thank you so much for your, your great reporting and for taking the time to speak to us today. Thanks so much. And when we come forward, we're going to be talking to KVLA sports reporter Ray Richardson about the Michael Orr story and how the blind side was actually just a lie. It wasn't true. They didn't actually adopt Michael Orr. We're going to talk about that when we come forward after this news, traffic and sports update on KVLA Talk 1580. And we are back on Reba Martin in real time. Avi Bernard here. Um, with Ray Richardson. I'm filling in for uh, Arif Martin today and no debates, no speculation, just the info you need. <laughs> no, I have to do it every time you're on the show, Ray. Um, uh, appreciate you joining us today. And we are going to be talking about um, the Michael Orr situation. I wanted to to have you on to discuss this, uh, this news today that uh, Michael Orr thought he was adopted by this white family that, and they were the subject of the movie, The Blind Side, big movie, $300 million worldwide box office, enormous haul. Yeah. Uh, and, and he didn't get any of it. He, he thought he was adopted by them. It turns out it was a conservatorship and he was not entitled to any of that money, despite it being his life story, despite it being his name and image and likeness. And now they're, they're filing a complaint to end the conservatorship. And I just want to get your thoughts, uh, your overall thoughts on this, uh, on this situation. Well, they need to file more than just a complaint. They need to file a lawsuit to to turn that situation around. I was reading about this today, and I'm not totally surprised that this has come out like this because there have been some rumblings in the past that something wasn't really on the up and up with this whole situation. And 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 props to, to Michael Orr for, for finally getting the legal help that he needs to, to get this thing in front of a judge. One one of the things that really just bothered me in in reading some some of the accounts of this is that they they were the the couple Sean and and uh, Leanne Tui they they had Michael sign some documents uh, even when they first brought him into their home when he was only eighteen and he's admitting that he signed some things but he didn't know what he was signing and I, I really felt like this couple was taking full advantage of him as best they could. And and also there were some warning signs. There should have been some flags for people who were closer to Michael <clears throat> that these folks were looking for agents. They were looking for um, 
some deals to to get a story told in movies. Um, they they seem to have an ulterior motive from day one when they brought this kid into their home. Now, props to them, <clears throat> excuse me for for letting them come in their home and taking care of them. But it seemed like these folks saw, saw dollar signs the minute they brought him into their home. And it just makes you wonder now, you know, what their, what was their real motive for doing this? And it's sad to say that the movie was so successful that Sandra Bullock, who played the part of the mother, won an Oscar for her role in this movie. <laughs> that shows you how big this film was. She got an Oscar for this. And it, it, just, it just, just reinforces how how some people can take advantage of a situation and, and, and to Michael's, you know, discredit a little bit, he was probably so naive at that age when he was with this family that he didn't know what was going on. And it, it's just tragic and sad that, that they would take him to this limit and take advantage of him this much. And not, now they have tried to say, now they have tried to say that they did share some of the proceeds with him, but they're not saying how much. And when you look at a film that gross, as you said, $300 million. And then the other other part of this is that they have been marketing themselves as a nonprofit organization dedicated to, you know, whatever. But everything they have done has been based around their association with him. None of this would be happening for them if they hadn't brought him into their home. So everything they've done, they've created a foundation. They've got these nonprofits out here. They've got these marketing engines behind them. All of this is because of Michael Oher. And he should have been at the forefront of these discussions from day one. And because he was not, now he's trying to get some legal ramifications uh, behind this done. He he deserves every bit of resources or residue, residuals that are supposed to come to him. This couple... For, for the good they were trying to do in the beginning, they have uh, pretty much overshadowed that by by all the underhanded and manipulations they have done since then. This couple by no means is, is a humanitarian couple anymore. These folks have become business people. They've become business persons and a marketing firm pretty much to to make as much money off this as they can, and they've done it. And the the... the the sad part about it is that they have not brought Michael along with them when this revenue started flowing in. He's he has not got his just due behind this, and he's almost. I, I would be shocked if he feels like you know he benefited from this. He did not. This whole thing is almost a lie that now he knows that he was not adopted. Yeah, it, it's a it's a horrible situation, and you know to. To his credit, actually, you know, I think it's I don't think it should be a discredit to him that when he was 18, he didn't know he was signing. You know, you. Yeah, exactly. You had a you had a a, a rough life. He was uh, homeless Uh, at the age of 11. He was a ward of the state of Tennessee. And you you have this family who you think you can trust. You you know, they they're they become your de facto parents. And so you're saying they ask you to sign something. Yeah, sure. I'll sign it. You know, you gave me a home. You know, yeah. What do you need to sign? You don't realize that they're planning from the very beginning to use you to get rich. Mm-hmm. And they, this is maybe someone they saw some talent in. He had some size. He was, you know, he, he was good at what he did, good at playing football. And maybe they just, and you, you mentioned earlier, maybe they, uh, they, they brought him into their home 
with the goal of making money off them. And that is that is the, the hardest part to consider about all of this. Um, just just super sad, man. And and if I may make a lame dad joke, it's not the blind side. It's more like the lie side. They just they just completely just uh, made this made this um, fairy tale that we all got attached to. And, you know, this this white savior complex and and Sandra Bullock, one of the biggest actors in the industry, uh, get to play the to play the part of the mom. And it turns out it was all it was all a facade. Well, I'm, I'm a little curious about the, the title of the movie, because now the, that title blindside really <laughs> comes to comes forward now. I mean, he, he got blindsided. And I know I know that's not the reason why they named the movie that way. But now but now that title of the movie really hits home. Mm -hmm. You know, he was blinded, uh, you know, more ways than one. I mean, he of course, he was healthy, wasn't blinded, you know, with his eyesight. But but philosophically, you know, he looks back on this now. And instead of the movie being the blind side, he was blindsided by this. And there needs to be. There needs to be some some uh, accountability for for the uh, Tui family in this. Uh, you you really you really got to feel like you know you got there's got to be some justice in this case, and and I hope that he's got it now. It looks like from reading what I read earlier today that he's got a real strong legal team behind him now to to try to get this thing you know done right, and I hope that they get every penny every dollar he was supposed to get. I hope they get it for him. And I also hope that this couple, uh, the Tui couple, uh, Sean and Leanne, are brought to the carpet to to be held accountable for what they tried to do and what they didn't do. Uh, their story needs to come out of the closet, and, and they need to be put on blast uh, for what they did and what they did not do. 100%. And people might make the argument, oh, Michael Orr, uh, this is someone who played eight years in the NFL. He's probably got a lot of money. That's not the point. The point is the principle. And they... Uh, use this man and uh, without his consent yeah to, to make money off him and they made uh if you look at the deal they signed uh they uh, about a quarter of a million dollars uh for for uh, up front and they got two and a half percent of the movie's proceeds which for a movie that makes 300 million dollars that's 7.5 million dollars mm. so that's that's a lot of money and whether or not michael orr has a lot of money himself is irrelevant because it's his story. It's his name. It's his likeness. And none of that is happening without him. And he's the one playing football, getting hit every day. So he's the one who deserves to, to profit off of his story. But thank you for the, for that perspective on that, uh, on, on that perspective, on that, on that story, right? When we come forward, I want to, um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about baseball and uh, specifically the Dodgers and uh, you know, uh, Dodger fans in recent years have been disappointed many times, um, despite being the best team in the league and and falling short in the playoffs. And uh, this year, it's they, they have they weren't favored to be the best team in the league. It's supposed to be a down year for them. Yet they they do have the second best record in the National League, and it, it, they do have a shot. I want to talk to Ray about uh, what what the Dodgers' actual title prospects are, and. And maybe, you know, a team in their division, the San Diego Padres, who was supposed to be challenging for a division title this year and maybe a World Series. Uh, I believe they had the second highest odds of winning a World Series when the season started. And now they are more than likely not going to make the playoffs because they are so bad, despite having the best lineup on paper. 
going to talk to Ray about that, as well as his experience, uh, since we're talking about baseball, his experience at uh, the National Association of Black Journalists this past weekend, getting to visit a, a Negro League uh, stadium where they're going to have a major league game next season. All that when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva Martin in real time. Avi Bernard in for Ariva Martin tonight. And we are lucky to be joined by KBLA sports reporter Ray Richardson. Really appreciate your time this evening, Ray. I want to talk to you about the Dodgers. They have the third best record in the major league so far this year. It's supposed to be a down year for them. A lot of their players left. Justin Turner, Cody Bellinger leaving in free agency. And it was they have a lot of their young guys coming up, a lot of the guys from their farm system uh, stepping into prominent roles. They lost Gavin Lux, who was supposed to be their uh, one of their their key middle infielders. Uh, yeah. lost, lost for the season before the season even started to uh, to a torn ACL, and and now they're they're up there, you know, with with uh, a better record than everyone except for the Braves and the Orioles. So, uh, what do you think about? the Dodgers championship hopes for this season? Well, first of all, I'm happy that, that uh, the Dodgers are really doing well because this takes the pressure off of Dave Roberts after last season when they fell apart in the first round to San Diego in the playoffs after winning a record 111 games. There were people thinking that if the Dodgers were not better this year, that Dave Roberts might be in trouble this year. And we haven't heard those discussions at all this season, and particularly in the last two months. It looks like these guys are, are really going to be a contender. And to me, the main thing is that Dave Roberts doesn't have to worry about defending his job because the team is playing so well, and it's great to see. I mean, these guys are like 25 games over 500 right now. They've won eight straight. They're the hottest team in baseball right now. They, they really have put some distance between them and the Giants. Uh, they've got an eight-and-a-half game lead on them right now. So right now, if they keep playing like this, they're going to be a, a real factor in the playoffs, and it's, it's this is the time to do it. This is the time to turn things around. When you get into August and get close to September, you want to be playing your best ball. And right now, the hometown team is doing that, and if they keep this up, um, I think they got a better shot to do – a little go a little deeper than they did last year because there's not so much focus on them as it was last year. When you win 111 games, mm-hmm. you are, you're expected to, to at least get get to the title round, and they didn't get there. They didn't get anywhere close to that. Now there's no pressure in them to really get to that point. They're just playing relaxed and, and free baseball, and I think this I think it's going to help them get a little further this year than last year. What do you think about their their trade deadline? They were they were trying to make a, a splash, trying to to make a trade, uh, but uh, Eduardo Perez was um, was someone who they were going after, uh, but he um, he vetoed the trade from the White Sox. Uh, he he said no, uh, I actually don't want to. Oh, I'm sorry, Eduardo Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, he um, he said actually no, I don't want to be a Dodger. I'll stay here in Detroit, even though Detroit is a horrible team. He, he he spurned the Dodgers, and so uh, all that to say, did they really need that trade? Obviously, it would have made them better on paper, but do you think that was a big hit to the championship hopes? No, I don't think so, because it looks like their pitching staff is starting to come around, particularly their bullpen. Their bullpen was really the reason why they were struggling so much early in the season. They couldn't hold a lead. And it looked like they were going to have one of those seasons where 
they weren't going to make it to the playoffs. It, it didn't look good at first, but now the bullpen has started to straighten things out, and they're getting some some great starting pitching from a guy they weren't expecting in Bobby Miller. And we saw uh, Julio Arias yesterday, you know, turn up a gym with, with 12 strikeouts. <clears throat> and if you get him going, and they've been, and keep in mind, they've been doing this without really a healthy Clayton Kershaw. Uh, Kershaw has been on the on the disabled list, has missed some games. You know, he hasn't been totally healthy, but now he's back in the rotation. They really made their move without him. And now you got him back. You, you're looking at a team that's solid in their rotation, and now that bullpen is starting to come around. Uh, this is a, a good mix for the Dodgers right now. Things are starting to happen for them. And you might get Walker Buehler back, too. He is still un, un, not, not certain yet, but the, he's, he's been their best pitcher in the playoffs in the past. Yeah. He got hurt last year. It's been about a year since he had his second Tommy John surgery. He's way ahead of schedule, though, and he might be able to come back next month. But uh, speaking of the Dodgers having – and eight and a half game lead over the Giants. They have a 15 and a half game lead over the San Diego Padres, who are supposed to be really good. Yeah. The best up on paper. Star yeah. studded. The Padres knocked the Dodgers out of the playoffs last year in the divisional round. Uh, and lineup that includes Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr., Xander Bogart, <laughs> and Manny Machado. Four of the best hitters in baseball. And the Padres are second to last in the division. What, what do you make of the Padres' uh, stunning fall this year? I think that's the biggest waste of money I've seen in, in sports in quite a while. Uh, that owner down there was trying to build a winning team, and he had the right intentions. He had the right guys in line to sign, but these guys are not producing. They're inconsistent. Uh, there's a lot of hype with that franchise, with the players they brought in. It is not working. And you know what? I know the Dodgers are saying that's their problem. <laughs> we're more focused <laughs> about what we're doing. But I, I thought that San Diego was ready to take the next step after last season. And mm -hmm. it has not worked out that way. They have spent a lot of money for no reason. Um, I, don't, I don't see that lasting too long. You can't keep spending that kind of money on salaries and not have a good return for that investment. Hmm. Uh, they got some trouble down there. This, is, they're not in a good situation at all. Yeah, yeah, they were actually doing so bad this year that they were almost going to trade some of their key pieces at the trade deadline. They, they changed course and decided that they were still going to try to make the playoffs, but they almost gave up on the season yeah. before the trade deadline. But I want to ask you before we run out of time, Ray, uh, about your experience at the um, at the National Association of Black Journalists. And while you were there, you got to uh, you got to visit uh, a Negro League museum. Can you tell us about that? Well, it was actually a Negro League stadium called Rickwoods Field. Yeah, uh, Rickwood Rickwoods Field is a, a very historic location for baseball purists out there. Uh, the Bl Birmingham Black Barons were one of the more prominent Negro League teams back in the day, and uh, got a chance to go to that stadium to see that firsthand. And what a memorable experience that was! We got a chance to go to the place where Willie Mays got his start. Willie Mays broke into baseball with the Birmingham Black Barons before he signed with the Giants. And that was the place that he played at. Uh, Hank Aaron has played there. Jackie Robinson played there. Uh, even Reggie Jackson, who did not play in the Negro Leagues, but when Reggie Jackson signed with it, with the minor leagues, he was with, he was with the Oakland A's minor league uh, in their system. And their double-A team played in Birmingham, and they played at that, at that field, Rickwood Stadium. So there was a ton of history there, and we went there 
really for an announcement by Major League Baseball to announce that the St. Louis Cardinals and the Giants will play a regular season game that next year on July 20th as a salute and a tribute to the Negro Leagues. And I think that's a marvelous, outstanding gesture on MLB's part to take the game back to the roots of where some great players got their start. They're going to play a game there in that same field. They're going to fix it up. It needs a, needs a little window dressing, but Major League Baseball is going to do all of that and fix that place up. And they're going to have a regular season Major League game there at Rick Woods Field in Birmingham. I hope I get a chance to go. It's going to be a major event to go, go see, and I hope I get a chance to get a credential for that. Yeah, I hope you do too. So you can, you can maybe uh, talk to us live from that game. Oh, and, I would love to. <laughs> and also, just what an experience that would be. Uh, and I hope that's something that Major League Baseball will adopt and, and start to do every year. I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be a site. I know there's going to be all kinds of uh, black celebrities there. And oh, it will be. It's going to be, it's going to be like a, like an all-star game, but, uh, but Ray Richardson, really appreciate your time this evening. Uh, always appreciate hearing your insights on, on the latest uh, of stories happening in sports. So uh, thank you so much for your time this evening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. You can hear Ray Richardson every Saturday on Out of Bounds right here on KBLA at 7 p.m. and also every hour. As you well know, I'm Avi Bernard and I am gone.